there are things we believe about the Bible that just aren't in the Bible. The Bible never really talks about there being three wise men present at the birth of Jesus, or that Adam and Eve ate an apple in the garden, or that it was a whale that swallowed Jonah. But for so many of us, there are years of tradition and human interpretation that have instilled in us, sometimes even unknowingly, misconceptions about the biblical text. So how do we read the Bible in its original context? How do we do the work of separating tradition from truth and our cultural interpretations from what the text actually says? How was the Bible written? How did it come to us? And did Mary Magdalene really not wear blue eyeshadow? Podcast. My name is Josh, and I am normally joined by my co-host, Gabe Rutledge, but um, I received word this morning that Gabe Rutledge has decided to, um, well, he's he's decided to break up with me. Um, we've been together for a long time. No, just kidding. Gabe could not be here this morning uh, for uh, some technical issues, and so he has decided to, to sit this one out, um, but... I have been told that he has assigned this podcast episode as an assignment for his 11th graders at uh, his school. He's, he's a history teacher, Bible teacher, and so Northside Knights, thank you guys for listening. If you're listening, so shout out to those guys. It's sad that Gabe's not here with me this morning, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll make it work. We'll make it work. I, I actually, uh, there, there's somebody else that's sitting in for Gabe because we don't really need Gabe, let's be honest. Just kidding. Gabe, I miss you. Love you, bud. Uh, my my guest today does not have a beard, um, but we will uh, we'll make it work nonetheless. So uh, I am actually joined today by an awesome guest. Really excited about this. Her name is Amanda Hope Haley. She is the author of a recent book, Mary Magdalene Never Wore Blue Eyeshadow. And she holds a master's degree of theological studies in Hebrew scripture and interpretation from Harvard University. I think that's a community college outside of Smyrna, Tennessee. Last time I heard. Yeah, actually, that's outside of Medford, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard of Every, that place We before. all know Medford. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll yeah, I'll, I got to do some more research on that place. Uh, <laughs> she hosts the Red Haired Archaeologist podcast. She's ghostwritten for popular Christian authors. She's contributed to the Voice Bible Translation. Her and her husband David live in Tennessee with their always entertaining Basset Hound, Copper. Uh, Amanda Hope Haley, how are you this morning? I'm fine. How are you doing this morning? I'm Solo? good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I wish Gabe was here, but uh, I'm, he's with he's with us in spirit. So that's right. That's yeah. right. Well, I'm a little intimidated now. I had no idea that um, a bunch of high school students were going to be listening to this. Yeah. My yeah, mom yeah. was a high school teacher for her entire oh, career, yeah. so um, I, I understand the stakes. Yeah. So we got to be like Johnny on the spot today. Yeah. Because we'll we'll mislead them if if not. So, yeah. So did I miss anything in the bio or is that, is that about, that about covers it? That's the sum totality of your personhood. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, Nothing else to add there. Yeah. So you live in Chattanooga, Tennessee now. I do. I do. Um, but we've, we've kind of lived all over. Um, my husband and I've been married for 17 years, which is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, we, we did the Harvard thing right after we got married. So we were in Boston. We're both, um, natives of the Nashville area. Okay. Um, so we did Boston, then we came back to Nashville, then we were in Denver for a while. Now we're in Chattanooga. Um, cool. So he builds hospitals. So in this strange wow. pandemic time, he's one of those essential workers. And yeah. um, he's in, actually, he's in Little Rock, Arkansas right now, okay. looking awesome, at some sites. Awesome. Um, yeah. That's what he does. And yeah. I, I write books and Very I used to cool. edit them and do all that stuff that you mentioned. And so yeah. um, I worked wherever I had a laptop. Well, there you go. So yeah, it's been the, a fun life so far. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. Well, your book that you uh, wrote recently, phenomenal book. It's called Mary Thank Magdalene you. Never Wore Blue Eyeshadow. And the first time I heard of that title, it, it captured my interest. Um, 
tell me what how'd you come up with that title that's an interesting title what is the what is the book about well we um in all honesty we had a lot of trouble coming to a title um mm-hmm. i think we had three official titles um over the course of like two years um but we ended up just basically taking that from from the introduction so um the, the subtitle of the book is how to trust the bible when truth and tradition collide mm. and that really honestly tells you more about the about the contents of the book than, than the title itself. Right. But um, where it came from is I was sitting in a graduate school class at Harvard. Uh, we were studying the apocryphal text, the Gospel of Mary. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a there's a part in there where the um, basically Jesus has given Mary some special knowledge and uh, all of the other disciples aren't trusting her, aren't, you know, believing what she said. And so my teaching fellow who was in the, in our little section that day, there were like six or seven of us in the room. And he just asked us, you know, so why do you think that the disciples, the apostles didn't believe Mary? And I mean, I grew up in the church. Um, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was, I was baptized twice. Uh, it's go. Cumberland Presbyterian and sprinkling wasn't good enough for the Baptists. So then I did that too. <laughs> and, um, so I knew this answer and I raised my hand. I said, well, was it because she was a prostitute? Mm-hmm. And um, there was actually laughter in the class. Mm-hmm. And the, the really nice teaching fellow took control of the situation and explained to me for the first time in my, at that time, like 23 years of life, that uh, Mary Magdalene was not in fact a prostitute, but that is not in the Bible. It's a tradition wow. that goes back to like the, uh, 16th, 15th century. And, um, yeah, that was really embarrassing. There yeah. was a kid in the class who looked me dead in the face and said, how did you get to Harvard without knowing that Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute? Yikes. Wow. When I've spent my whole life in the church at that point, I'd spent my entire academic career in the Bible. Right. And it was a really good question. Um, so Absolutely. that's so, where the title comes from. Yeah. <laughs> Well, fascinating. I mean, the book is is amazing. I had a chance to read it. Great, great, great book. Um, I, I think it's so fascinating how um, so many of us that grew up in church, so many of us that grew up studying the Bible, going to Sunday school, doing doing all the Bible studies and stuff, we we still have these um, preconceived uh, traditional viewpoints on certain things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think about when I taught the, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're, that's what we're doing here at our church, and we got to the part about uh, the, the Magi, mm-hmm. and we started talking about, and, and somebody said, somebody would come to me and say, well, you know, th- there's three Magi, right? And there's, you know, and all, all these things, and, and we had to, like, okay, let's talk for a second. The, the text never says there were three. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were three gifts, but, I mean, there yeah. could be as many as a hundred, right? Yeah. And, and so... I think unhinging ourselves from those traditional understandings that we got from who knows where. Oh yeah, um, is really important. Mm-hmm. The birth narrative is a great example of that. There are so many things that I think have gotten baked into our, our Christian view of what the Bible says about that just because of years of tradition. Sure. Even just the concept of the Magi being there at Jesus' birth—absolutely mm-hmm. not what the Bible right. says. But, you know, that's that's what's in our nativity scenes. Absolutely. And, yeah, um, yeah like our in speaking of the nativity scenes, too, I know I grew up with um, a nativity scene that was set in a barn um, <laughs> surrounded by fake snow. You oh, know, absolutely. all this. It's, it was definitely <laughs> snowing right in the middle oh, of uh, absolutely. Uh, December 25th. Mm-hmm. Right? Under, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, underneath like, an extremely fragrant Fraser fir tree or something absolutely. like that. You know, and I, so much of that is not in the Bible. <laughs> But, you know, it's difficult to, you know, tell people who have grown up believing that the three wise men were there at Jesus' birth or Mm -hmm. that Mary Magdalene was a woman of ill repute. It's it's tough to tell someone that that's not actually in the Bible. And I think that is so hard because we grow up in these traditions and we're taught these things, I think, by really well-meaning teachers who honestly don't you know, don't know that that's wrong because it's a mm. lot harder to realize what's not in the Bible than what is in it. Because wow. if you just, you know, you're studying Mark or y'all studying Matthew and you open it up and you read that. And you know, so much of what Luke says about the birth narrative isn't in Matthew. Right. But when you're reading Matthew, you're, you're putting in the angels right. and right, you know, right, all right, of right, those right. extra parts that aren't there because yeah. you've grown up thinking they're there. So your mind just sticks them in. Sure. Well, it, it, you wrote in your book, 
we must examine Scripture itself so we know the differences between what God said in the Bible and what people say about the Bible. Um, so we've talked about some of this, these common misperceptions that people have about what it says, what it doesn't say. Uh, what is it? Is it mainly in your experience? Is it? Is it mainly been about? You know the gospel narratives, uh, the Christmas story. What what are some other things that maybe you've seen that um, you know people bring to the text, and kind of how does that have a negative um, impact on how people understand the scripture and how people you know take it and receive it? Um, there are a lot. <laughs> there, there's a lot in that question. Um, <laughs> I would say I'm going to take the last part first, which yeah, do how does it how does it impact the way you view something? And actually, Mary Magdalene being characterized as a prostitute is a really great example of how something that's not in the Bible can kind of taint your impression. And I mean, I I think she is a person that I grew up with a tainted impression of. Um, Mm -hmm. The blue eyeshadow part came from um, my mom. When I, when I told her about discovering that Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute, she told me how, when she was growing up, she was in an Easter play. She played the role of Mary Magdalene. And so her mother white blue eyeshadow all over her eyes because everyone knew that Mary Magdalene was the prostitute. And I mean, I guess they wore a lot of blue eyeshadow back in the day. Um, So that like my mom grew up having a negative impression of Mary Magdalene as did her mother. And honestly, as, as did I. And so whenever you run across her in the text, I think you see Mary, in my experience, I I would see Mary Magdalene and I would think prostitute. Mm -hmm. I would think, you, you, you know, woman with seven demons, maybe she got saved, whatever, but I would miss that she's the only individual of any sex that is in all of the resurrection stories, you know, all all of the really important things about her, Uh um, Mm -hmm. that honestly, I I was in Magdala about this time last year and, um, just, I had no idea. They talk about, she was a woman of wealth. Well, when you go out Mm. to Magdala and you see what Magdala looked like. They're, they're excavating it today. It was an incredibly uh, rich uh, farming community right. and all of this. It was a, a place of high learning. So many synagogues per capita, really, really strange. So, I mean, this is a woman who came from a place, she probably had, you know, extensive understanding of Jewish literature and history from, from growing up and all of that. And um, so the, the story that got attached to her changed changed her character in the Bible right. and then therefore changed the standing that she had. Yeah. So how, how did that happen? Was it just one of those things where people looked at all of the different stories of Jesus, you know, being a friend of sinners and, and things like that. And, and the assumption might have become, well, Jesus hung out with prostitutes. There's Mary in the text. So therefore Mary must have been a prostitute that Jesus hung out with. Is that how that happened over the years? No, not, um, if only it had been so innocent. <laughs> um, and it probably was innocent. There, there was a Pope Gregory um, mm-hmm. back in the day, back before the Protestant Revolution. Um, uh, revolution, I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. I guess it was a revolution. There you go. <laughs> Protestant Reformation. Um, so he, he was the head of the church. He was the voice of God on earth. And all Christians, except the Orthodox, uh, followed him and just believed everything that he said. At, at that time, um, there were... If you read the Bible, you read it in Latin, unless mm. you knew Greek. Um, I mean, that's how know. I read in my quiet time. I don't know Absolutely. About you, but, yeah, yeah, we all do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he was the guy that everyone was listening to. And in one of his, you know, one of his you know, Sunday morning sermons, if you will, he was talking about Mary Magdalene. And, or, and what the Bible says is that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so the next... Excuse me, forgive me. That's the story about her. The story previous to that is um, the story of the woman washing Jesus's feet with her hair. And that woman doesn't have a name. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of theories, and she's been attached to different women over the years, but Mm -hmm. the scripture does not give her a name. Well, Pope Gregory, in his desire to, I don't know, maybe maybe make it easier to tell a story, for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, he was reading his Bible, and he just went to, you know, what is the next female name? And, you know, eight verses later, boom, Mary Magdalene is the one mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so in this 
in this Sunday morning sermon, um, he attached the two women and, you know, everybody believed him. No one fact checked him because most people probably couldn't. And, you know, she started off being the sinner, you know, Mm -hmm. the woman washing Jesus's feet and eventually sexual sin got attached to that. And she also became the unnamed adulteress and basically all kind of all of the unnamed women with sexual sin kind of got attached to her and eventually as rumors do that grew and she Mm -hmm. became prostitute and you know that that's where we are today so it was it was an instance of a human Mm -hmm. looking at this text and seeing that he thought something was missing and trying to fill it in and now here we are so many centuries later and i mean honestly look at the damage that's done absolutely you know to to our tradition well, that's that's so interesting how certain things that aren't in the text get in the text, and then over years, like you said, it gets taught as if it yeah. was truth. And you wrote this. You said, reading the Bible in its original context instead of from our context may teach us that what we thought was truth is legend. And man, that's a that's an awesome awesome quote. Um, <laughs> and that's I think that's the hope when we responsibly handle Scripture yeah. is to read it in its original context, but how do we do that? How do we try as best as we know how to kind of take off this filter mm-hmm. of, you know, hey, I grew up in 90s church, right? Me so, too. <laughs> you know, so a lot of my understanding of uh, that kind of stuff is, is, is tainted by, you know, salty cassettes and Carmen uh, concerts and all that good stuff, right? So That's a name I haven't heard in years, yeah. Oh, man, Carmen, he's, uh, yeah, he came to Murfreesboro last year. Um, really? Yeah, he's still he's still alive and kicking, still doing wow. church stores apparently. Yeah. Awesome. I had all of his cassettes. Oh and then wow. he did he did video albums. Were you into Carmen at all? I I mean I, I remember no, Carmen. If you say no, this interview's over. No, I'm just kidding. Keep going. I mean, I was <laughs> I was a girl. I was a little bit in love with Michael W. Smith and Stephen Curtis mm. Chapman. Let's be honest. And yeah, I, I the, went to a the, church. The three name fellows. Yeah. yeah. And I, I went to a Baptist church where actually Stephen Curtis Chapman's brother went there. And oh, um, Mercy Me, believe it or not, back in the day, they were our mm-hmm. they were like our cottage. They were our Wednesday night church band. Um, oh, so, that's kind of cool. Yeah, so well, I, I, I was on that end. Studies show that none of those guys are Carmen. Um, <laughs> true, so, true, true. Sorry, yeah. but I'm I'm aware of it. Well, very, and being I, aware yeah. and being a fan are two very different things. It's so. true. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> How did we start talking about Carmen? I'm sorry, I don't know. No, no, that's my fault. Probably I do this all the time. So, getting back to the question, how, how do we read the Bible in its original context instead of bringing in Michael W. Smith filter, or Carmen filter, or all that stuff? How do we how do we actually say, okay, I, I'm a product in so many ways of my experiences, mm-hmm. of my family of origin, of my culture, yeah. of my traditions, and this Bible was not written for men who grew up in Georgia in the 1980s and 90s. True. So how do we do that? Uh, you know, it takes work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry, sorry to say that, but um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think the first step is trying to open up the Bible and and trying to read it as if it's the first time, every uh-huh. time that you do it, I think you have to do it with that intention. So right. that that's the first part. Um, and then the second part I think is, you know, if, if you're not going to study the languages, which I understand most people aren't. And I think God probably gifted specific individuals, you know, with a talent in languages and all sure. that. Um, but everyone can, I think, you know, read history, learn history, um, mm. you know, find out what others are are saying about the Bible, people who mm-hmm. are, you know, studying it as their career and all that. There's a danger there. Um, mm-hmm. I think when you're reading, when you're reading a book like I wrote, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're putting a certain level of, of trust in, in me and what I believe and what I'm putting on the page. Um, so I encourage people to know who their authors are, um, know where mm-hmm. they're coming from, how they've studied, what they believe, all of that. It, right. it takes research. It takes time. It takes work. Um, but I actually think that's the way God wants us to approach scripture anyway. Mm-hmm. I yep. mean, if, if God just, you know, wanted everything to be black and white, ha ha ha. Um, mm-hmm. and, and really, really easy to understand. I mean, he could just, he could just come and have a press conference a few times a year and be like, Hey right. guys, this is it. This is the way boom. But mm-hmm. for whatever reason, he, he gave us this, 
this series of 66 texts um, that are, were written by different people at different times and um, times and people who we don't understand, but we're invited to really dive in and learn. And in the time that we spend interacting with the text, that's, that's how we get to know God. Wow. Um, So it's, yeah, I mean, it's a challenge, but it's worth it. Absolutely. Um, I, I think, I think there's many people, and I had a mentor tell me this uh, guy who had been pastoring for years and years and years, and we were talking just about challenges in, in pastoral ministry, and he said that many people, in the South especially, take the Bible to be a magic talisman. Yeah, yeah. Where instead of believing it to be the um, active living Word of God, the 66 sacred texts that are inspired by God, that are the rule for practice in life, that they were written with their own unique context and all those types of things. A lot of people just see it as a magic talisman, right? You just open it up and point to a verse and you don't really even have to understand what it says. You just sort of read it out loud and then you can twist it and say, he says he knows the plans he has for me. That means I'm not going to need to get an oil change today because my car's going to keep running, right? Like, And it seems like we have kind of done that with the Bible. Definitely. Maybe well-meaning, maybe out of a a reverence for it, but because, I don't know, I guess I'm trying to get into my, that mindset a little bit. I I think you're maybe giving those people a lot more grace than I do. Well, Um, I'm giving grace because that was me for a long time. I, you know, it, it was me too as a kid. I mean, I, I remember, yeah, I mean, being concerned about something and I'm just going to open up the Bible and there's going to be a word there for me. No women, no women, no women. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Judas hung himself. Ah, you know, (laughs) (laughs) heaven forbid he lands in the old Testament. I mean, it's not going to be pretty. (laughs) Odds are. Um, but it, it, I guess it's ultimately it's Mm -hmm. lazy theology. Yeah. To do that. Um, and I, I mean, you're hitting what, what he said about it being a magic talisman. Mm-hmm. It's it's not something that we're just supposed to just pull out on special occasions. It's it's not a, it's not a Bible answer book. You right. know, it's 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 nothing like that. It's, it's something you're supposed to interact with and have a relationship with mm, so like that, that when yep. you are in these situations where you want to just open it up you know, and point to you and find an answer really, really quickly using your concordance. Maybe you don't use your finger, maybe use your concordance, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, or however you would do it. Um, ideally we would have, you know, a strong enough relationship with the Bible that, that, um, I mean, it would, it would speak into our situation with, right. without right. us feeling like we, we need to do that. Absolutely. So you think, uh, and this is just me thinking through this, do you think that maybe the reason people have gone to that understanding, number one, lazy theology, mm. um, hey, you don't really need to study to show yourself approved as a workman that's rightly able to handle the word of truth. You just need to have it on yourself, and when you're going through a hard time, just pull it out, yeah. throw it open, and God's just kind of, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's that part of it. But I think another part is, you know, you grow up hearing that the Bible is God's word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's alive. It's active. There is something different about the biblical text than, you know, just some random devotional book off your shelf. I mean, it's yeah. it is God's word, right? And so maybe there's this misunderstanding um, about how exactly that works. Yeah. So when we as Christians say, "Hey, the Bible just isn't a book. The Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit," do you think everybody means the same thing when they use that phrase? inspired by the Holy Spirit to explain how God was involved in that process? Or do you think some people are maybe on different pages for exactly how that works? And I know we're getting kind of in the deep waters of theology, just hopping in because there's, you know, different understandings, I think of that, but yeah. Um, hmm. I think on the surface, people probably do mean the same thing, Mm -hmm. but the way it plays out in people's lives to you know, d- depending on how they interact with the Bible, that's right. different. Um, for instance, um, I, I think a, I think most people would agree that Scripture is inerrant. Yep. But people mean different things when they say that, and I think mm-hmm. the popular use of inerrant in that way, when most people say that, they 
what they really mean is that they think their specific English translation is mm. the exact right magic words, if you will, to right. that magic talisman. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of at play there. Right, 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 right. So this process of how the Bible like came to us, mm-hmm. you know, when some, <laughs> I remember as a kid when, uh, so I would grow up in KJV only churches in some yeah. uh, pockets of, of church that so we, we were professional church hoppers and church shoppers. My, my folks and I, <laughs> um, we had some churches that we stayed in for a long time. I would consider, man, that was my church home, but we went through mm-hmm. seasons where we just going to pop in here, pop in there, pop in here. And there were times when we would be in churches that would adamantly say, like you said, the KJV Bible is the inherent word of God. Every jot, every tittle. Yes. And, and I remember thinking, Oh, Jesus talks in Elizabethan English. That's, that's strange, (laughs) I guess. Um, and then when they'd say it's inspired by God, I mean, I, and as a young man, I literally thought this, and this is so funny to think back on this, that like that the Holy spirit showed up and there's Paul and the Holy Spirit's just sitting in the room, and, and the Holy Spirit is literally whispering word for word in Elizabethan English to Paul, and Paul's writing it down, right? And that's how it worked from Genesis to Revelation. Um, it's how it worked for the Muslim texts. That's what God did. Right. You know, that's how it, maybe it worked in other traditions, but mm-hmm. that's that's not how we believe the Bible came to be, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Well, talk about that. How would you describe yeah. this process of how the Bible was written? Uh, well, t- to begin with, um, going all the way back to the first five books to Genesis, um, mm-hmm. what is really strong there would be, um, I think the Bible started off as oral tradition. Mm. And when, when you look at those first five books of Moses, um, he began that oral tradition. Those are stories that were told and passed down in prose, in song, in, in poetry. It was a living, breathing word literally, I mean, spoken among Mm. the people who were following God. And so Mm. that's what's actually at the root of our scriptures is Mm. the oral tradition and the way it's passed from person to person that way. Then eventually, depending on what scholar you ask, um, writing became a thing and it started getting written down. And, um, And anyway, and so you have, by the time you get to um, let's say uh, the period of the Kings or whatever you have uh, some of the, some of the prophets, they actually talk about how you know, Baruch was a scribe who, you know, mm-hmm. ran around writing down the words um, that, you know, that the, the prophet was telling to him that he, the, then the prophet was hearing from God. So you have that time where there was just, you know, a little guy running around doing, right, doing, right, right. you know, blow by blow. Um, so there was that period in history, and then, um, then by the time you get to the New Testament, you've got the narratives that are right at the very beginning mm-hmm. um, about you know the life of Jesus. Those were written by people who, um, if they weren't there in the trenches with Jesus, um, they were really close to people who were. Right. Um, so they're telling these stories, you know, from their perspectives. And then, of course, the bulk of the New Testament then is letters. And so mm-hmm. at that point, you have the dialogue um, from, let's just say Paul, he did most of them, Mm -hmm. to the various churches. Um, Some churches that were, you know, with Jewish roots, some churches that were with Christian roots. But then Mm -hmm. there again, you have what is essentially, it's almost like you've come full circle and you're back around to the the um, the oral tradition right because right, he's right, writing right. these letters that were then you know out there read to other people and that's how the new testament developed was once again through word of mouth sure. through a letter being passed here and there sure. um that sort of thing so um yeah. that yeah. speaking part of it is is important yeah well i mean i think the first question some people may have when they hear that is okay so how do we know that oral tradition wasn't changed as it was passed down generationally until I think it's funny how you said eventually writing became a thing. Who was the first guy that ever, like, you're like, hey, Tom, check this out. So this little squiggly thing, that means, <laughs> <laughs> that's me describing a boat. What? You can do that? Right? I mean, I just think that's funny. Who's who's the first guy that decided writing was a thing? Um, but <laughs> it develops for, it's a real question. Yeah. So Proto-Hebrew, uh, those letters uh, came from, I mean, essentially, originally drawings. That represented yeah. something, and then the drawings kind of got stamped. And this is 
this is not my area of expertise, but I've studied enough of it to be dangerous. Um, But I mean, if you want to think about, you know, like Egyptian hieroglyphs, uh, they were much older. Um, But those are those are pictures that developed meanings. And eventually those pictures got simplified down into letters. And, you know, that's how how we landed the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew language. Wouldn't that be all other languages. If, if you were terrible at drawing and you were Egyptian, because people are like, I mean, it's you can't read or write, and you're like, well, mm. oh, I'm, I'm really terrible at drawing. I draw stick figures, and they're like, well, mm. you're Ill- you're illiterate because you can't draw. <laughs> I, I <laughs> yeah, thought that's funny. That would be me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I can't draw a stick figure with a ruler. <laughs> yeah, me either. So how do we know it hadn't just changed? You know, because if I tell a story to my kids. And then my kids tell a story to their kids, and then they tell a story to their kids. I mean, how, how can we be sure that these oral traditions, as they got passed down generationally, just weren't, you know, changed or exaggerated? or? Um... For the Christian, I mean, I think that's, that's really where the faith aspect comes from. And when you talk mm-hmm. about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit coming down, that is absolutely key to that. Right. Um, God, if, if this was God's truth— and we, especially looking at, say, the first five books of it, the really, really ancient texts, mm-hmm. um, we have to we, we have to have a level of trust there that mm-hmm. it came down. Now, once you once writing was a thing, mm-hmm. um, what's really cool is we um, when when you look at our Bible, our the, a complete version of that Bible is actually really, really new. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have a complete uh, Hebrew Old Testament until around 1000 A.D. Um, so mm. I mean, we're only talking a thousand years ago. Jesus had uh-huh. been resurrected for a thousand years right. before we even had the Old Testament in, in complete Hebrew. But um, there are so many different fragments and versions of the Bible out there right. that have been discovered and probably tons more waiting to be discovered. And uh-huh. the way that they all do agree is absolutely incredible. When uh-huh. you think about, first off, if you've ever seen Hebrew, um, it's hard on the eyes. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. um, and G- Gabe is our resident Hebrew scholar in this podcast. So I, I think he yeah. would agree. I mean, I know like when I was in graduate school, my vision over like two, three years got really bad, really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it was from, you know, staring at the literal, you know, jots and tittles, if sure, you will. Sure. Um, but the, um, Oh, where was I going? Oh, you were just talking about how <laughs> the manuscripts. There's there actually is congruency between the different Absolutely. manuscripts, and yeah, yeah, and and the places where there are discrepancies, most mm-hmm. of those discrepancies are so incredibly minor, mm-hmm. um, or they're so rare that it's you know it's really easy to see like okay, this scribe was probably a little tired and. He, right. you know, mis- mistook one letter for another because there wasn't electric lighting at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. they're writing by oil lamps in some cases. I mean, they're chiseling yeah. into rock. I mean, they're because there are the sand. That's another thing. Like there are fragments of, of scripture, not just on papyrus or, um, you know, the more writing mediums as we would think mm-hmm. about it. But mm-hmm. I mean, they're literally carved into stone and like found packed into walls all wow. over, all over Israel. Yeah. Um, so, you know, before people could afford pen and ink, um, mm-hmm. you know, they found other ways to press it down into mud, you know, or something like that. So, I mean, there was a, it was physically difficult in some yeah. cases to actually get these super important words down, but the people took the time and the energy and the effort to do it. Yeah. That's that's really 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 fascinating just to think about like the errors that we see if there are errors in some of those manuscripts mm-hmm. would be copyist errors. Yeah. Right? I mean it yeah. wouldn't be like Da Vinci Code-esque errors where some scribe is going, I know. <laughs> right? I'm going to make this better. I'm going to fix this. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and where we have that, it's usually from either traditions much, much later that were added, like in the instance of Mary Magdalene, right? Sure. And that's not really in biblical text. That's in just people tradition. adding tradition. Yeah. Or in texts that were written much later, like the Gnostic Gospels mm-hmm. or pseudographia or things that couldn't really be attributed to be biblical texts. They could be written much, 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 much later with an agenda, right? you know, to promote, you know, Gnostic theology or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, I usually am, so that's a, that's a lie. That's I'm good. Just, yeah. Um, <laughs> we all 
do our best. Amanda, when she gets to know me, you'll realize that half of the things I say aren't even true. So, and, and that's, that's part of what makes this podcast this podcast. I'm an idiot. Gabe's a smart one. Gabe is our Hebrew scholar. Gabe's our Bible scholar. Gabe's the one that's serious. And uh, I talk about Carmen. That's okay. And, yeah, and, and that's what I do. So, you know. Once you get to know me a little bit, you'll figure that out over over time. So I'm gonna reinvestigate Carmen. I, I feel should. like this is necessary. This is this is soul work. It is absolutely. Yeah. Who's in the house? That's a question I ask myself every morning. Who's mm-hmm. in the house? JC's in the house. Yeah, that's. Yes, I remember that. Okay. <laughs> hey, so talk about this. We, you mentioned this. The, the oldest completed copy of the Bible. Yeah. How old? Um, the, the trick question. Okay. <laughs> so the oldest. Com- Complete Bible mm-hmm. um, is around the fourth century, um, okay. but it's in Greek. The whole thing is in Greek. Okay. So, um, so you're dealing with the translation of the Old Testament. The oldest Hebrew version of the Old Testament is actually a thousand, around a thousand. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so it's a trick question. Yeah. Which. It, it, this is one of those things when, when people look at translation, I've, I've done quite a bit of translation work. Um, there was a Bible that came out a few years ago called The Voice. Um, mm-hmm. It was put out by Thomas Nelson. Um, I could, that's a whole other podcast. But um, one of the things we would deal with a lot in dealing with translation, um, and I've worked mostly with Old Testament, of course, is what do you do in those places where manuscripts disagree? And mm. often... D- disagreements. For instance, there is a disagreement over um, the height of Goliath, depending on if you read the oldest Greek version of Mm -hmm. the Old Testament, or which is called the Septuagint, Mm -hmm. or if you read the Hebrew version, which is called uh, the Masoretic Text. And the Masoretic Text is a thousand plus years younger than the Greek. Um, Mm -hmm. But the Greek has been translated from the Hebrew. And so when you have discrepancies between those two, Mm -hmm. which are, I mean, relatively few, um, Mm -hmm. when you have those disagreements, you have to ask that question, was more lost in translation Mm -hmm. a thousand years before, or was more lost in that thousand years of of copying? Um, So, um, yeah, that's... Yeah, one of the nuts and bolts kinds of, of, of things about it. So it's, it's hard to say. I mean, what is right, the oldest right, right. complete version? So in my, I, I use an ESV study Bible when I'm studying to to teach, and one of the things I really appreciate about it is it will tell me in the footnotes when some of the older manuscripts, you know, don't have this story in it. Yeah. Or some of the older manuscripts will say this versus mm-hmm. some of the newer manuscripts will say this. Yeah. And there is a popular um, internet meme that has been circulating on Facebook for a while. And I've had some members of my church send it over to me. And they're genuinely confused because it is written by KJV only people okay. that say the KJV has all these verses. And then the NIV or newer translations take some of these verses out and they'll, they'll point to all these different examples. And so what's interesting is the older manuscripts that have been unearthed since the KJV was written, we find that some of the things the KJV Bible put in it, actually, those were much later manuscripts and some of the earliest versions of the scriptures didn't contain those stories or those accounts or those verses. Yeah. So talk about yeah. why that would have happened. Oh, um, so um, I have an antidote that goes along with this. Last yeah. week, my dad contacted me and he, um, he he has a friend who's in the United Kingdom. And this guy had, had sent him a video of a guy talking about Revelation. And in the video, the guy was talking about the four horses of Revelation and their mm-hmm. colors and that they were um, black, red, white, and green. Mm-hmm. And my dad was listening to it and he was going, I don't remember a green horse. And so he, um, I think he went to Olive Tree. <laughs> he went, I think, probably first to his KJV because mm-hmm. um, that's what he primarily uses. Um, but then, you know, he started looking at all the other versions and he calls me and he's like, 
the voice says green and there was maybe like one or two other versions that did. Mm -hmm. He's like, but everything else has dappled. What's up there? Um, Wait, the word is dappled? Dappled. Yeah. So like <laughs> spotted, you know, something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, you know, I get to look and it, I get to looking it up. And um, so the King James version on to begin with, the Greek says green. Um, that is I think what it the says. Greek word is chloros, like where we get chloroform, uh, right? Is that it? I, I don't remember off the top of my head. That sounds right. Um, so anyway, so I mean, that is that is the word. There are some versions that maybe uh, will translate it like pale, pale mm -hmm. horse. The idea is to associate it with sickliness. Um, but King James version did dappled, and I got to looking into this and. This is my theory, uh, but my theory is when they were doing the translation, um, the book of Revelation, um, what John is saying, they're trying to tie it into older prophecies. And in older, uh, in some Old Testament prophecies, there is no green horse, there is instead a dappled horse. And so hmm. um, I think when the translate, basically, the people who were translating it into English were... They weren't just doing a direct, what we would call a word-for-word -word translation. Right. Um, they were actually putting commentary into it, and they were feeding their interpretation in. They were trying to, with their translation, make John, make the book of Revelation fit in with the rest of the Bible um, as they saw it. Right, right, and right, right, right. so you have so, so that, so be that the begins trans translators of yeah. the KJV, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so then the KJV was the only, you know really the only show for so very very right, long right, right, right. that once again that became tradition. Uh -huh. And so when other Bible translations would come through, they would look at this. I mean, it's the word in Revelation is not used very often in in the mm -hmm. Bible, but mm -hmm. it's not like an uncommon Greek word. Like it's pretty obvious that it means green. Um, right. So yeah, I just looked it but, up in the Greek. It's okay. hippos, hippos chloros. So okay, yeah, pale horse or green horse. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, green horse. I don't know about you, but I've only ever seen a green horse like in the wizard's emerald city <laughs> you know like those don't exist Dr. Seuss books, yeah. yeah yeah so i mean like you, you, you're kind of with the train the original translators right. and it's like okay this doesn't make sense let me go to the old testament i'm going to try to make this make more sense for people hmm. so yep you know it probably came from a good place um so i mean that that's probably there but right the idea of a green horse is going to be problematic for any new translator coming to the greek and sure. so you know hey the kjv guys did it let's just do that too. And so mm -hmm. that just kind of got carried. Um, right. Another ex quick example of this is, you know, in Exodus, um, you know, it talks about Moses parting the Red Sea. That is absolutely not what the Hebrew says. It says the Sea of Reeds, the Reed Sea. Um, hmm. And, you know, same thing. Someone early on was trying to explain to the readers that, hey, that sea of reeds, which you probably have never heard of, I'm going to tell you in my translation that it was the Red Sea. Um, once again, it becomes transition. Tra it becomes tradition, and it gets baked right. into it, so that when new translations come along, like when we were working on the voice, and you know, we for the first time are looking at individual words. Like right. this definitely says sea of reeds. Are we going to go with Red Sea? Are we going to go with Sea of Reeds? Same right, thing. Right, green right. horse. It's not that. It definitely says green. What right, are we going right. to do here? And so this is actually, I think, a great litmus test for your Bible. Mm -hmm. I will say with the voice, um, what we ended up doing in Exodus is we went with the Red Sea because mm -hmm. tradition is so strong there. But then we don't just have a footnote that says, you know, literally right. Hebrew Sea of Reeds. We actually, you know, have a have a block explaining it in there. Right, right, um, right, right. Whereas with uh, Revelation, we just went ahead and just went with green there. Mm -hmm. um, that those that was the call we made. And right. when Bibles are getting translated, translators, you know, you draw on your knowledge, you make your best guess at things. But I think mm -hmm. it is super important that when when manuscripts disagree or when a longstanding tradition is going to you know strike a new reader as odd, mm -hmm. you gotta have those footnotes. Those footnotes are so important. Yeah. Well, and at, le at least to let folks know, you know, hey, so let's talk. There's there is something to be said about, you know, this manuscript says this, this manuscript says this, tradition yeah. says this, you know, and I think for some of us that maybe grew up in more, um, I don't want to use the word fundamental, but 
but definitely like like hey man there's there's close-handed issues and you we, we traditional can't. yeah yeah um it, there's almost this fear of if we acknowledge that if yeah. we acknowledge those things then we're opening the door and it becomes a slippery slope to where all of a sudden oh gosh we don't believe the bible is god's word and and yeah. i don't think that's what that does to acknowledge the nuances between manuscripts and the differences between you know the difficulty translating words right. you know absolutely and i actually i, I kind of like those places mm-hmm. um, because i feel like those the, the things that are uncomfortable um, right. that are difficult that don't have a quick answer to me those are places where god is inviting me just to, to dig in a little bit more absolutely. and research yes. and study and um i mean it's in those uncomfortable places mm-hmm. um where it's easy for God to show me something new. (laughs) You know, I mean, no matter how many times I have read the Bible, every, I mean, every time I read it, I see something new Mm -hmm. and different. Mm -hmm. And, um, those, those places we fear them, um, because they're going to upset our apple cart. Maybe, maybe we're afraid that our faith isn't strong enough to endure those questions. Um, Mm. but in, in those places where we are afraid, Mm -hmm. God wants our questions. Right. You know, he's Absolutely. there. He wants us interacting with the yeah. text. I think that's why he gave it to us the way that he did instead sure. of having some, you know, supernatural press conference every right. so often. Is right. because he wants us wrestling with those things. That's how mm-hmm. we get to know him. Um, and yeah, we 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 don't need to be afraid of it. Yeah. It's, it's it's okay. It's okay to ask yeah. these questions. Well, and and I think it's interesting, you, you know, I'm sure that was probably a fascinating process to be involved with a translation of the Bible, like the voice. I'm sure that was probably, at times, you were delving into minutiae. Oh, bet. yeah. Oh, sure. Um, sure. But just the process by which a a good translation of the Bible comes about. Yeah. Um, it It's not, you know, most of the time one dude sitting in his office going hmm not most of the time there are a few out there there. there's there's one that came out recently that i have a big problem with it's called the passion translation have you heard about this one i have not all right so if you're listening to this and you've heard the passion translation is just this great you know translation of the bible it's one dude and he is closely connected with the New Apostolic Reformation, which is a kind of a charismatic movement. Okay. And so it is the New Apostolic Reformation version that they prefer because he is spirit-filled. And so he uses uh, language of impartation and all these, you know, NAR terms uh, okay. that he basically just sort of takes words from the Bible and says, you know, what if we just use this one instead? And it's one dude. One dude. yeah dude yeah that's how cults get started right that's not how responsible translations of the bible come about Mm, no i no no that's not how responsible translation. let me put it this way the bible um the bible itself wasn't given to one person we got 66 Mm -hmm. distinct books we have many many authors who were involved um so no i don't think i don't think god ever intended for um for scripture to be relayed based on what only one person thinks about it. Right. It's not, it's, it's just not the history that we have with the text. It's yeah. not the way it developed over time. So, it, it, so it's almost a committee approach to deciding which books get in, which books don't get in. It is. And you know, that's, that's important too, because people have different specialties. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm an, I'm an iron age person. I mean, archeology, span um, Hebrew, like I was really helpful. I think when it comes to, you know, Samuel Kings. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, you, you know that section of the Bible. You don't want me working on Revelation, honestly. There <laughs> are, you know, the, the gentleman who did that, um, David Capes. He's a Greek scholar, a wonderful man. Yeah, yeah. He man. was. He's he's a wonderful individual. Anyway, um, but he, he was he was over that. He knew what he was doing. He has yeah. studied that specifically. Um, so I don't need to be translating probably any of the New Testament for you, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, I mean, there were places where he and I would disagree about how to do something in the Old Testament. And even though I didn't have a Ph.D., sometimes he'd be like, you know, yeah, you know a little bit more about this than I do. So we'll go with, you know, whatever, wow. you know, your particular, you know, particular thing is here. So, yeah. you know, it's you have to have. Um, yeah. Translation, you have to approach it knowing that you don't know everything. 
Mm. Um, but put into it, I think, you know, what you have learned, um, what, what God has taught you. I mean, he's talented all of us in different ways. And, um, and I hope that he put me in that particular position, you know, for that time so that he could use me. Uh, but I'm, I hope that I was never so arrogant as to, you know, make decisions for the reader about something. Absolutely. And and I, I I, I think that's a point of, of understanding, you know, people who are still struggling and wrestling with, can you trust the Bible? Mm-hmm. You know, again, this thought of, you know, it gets changed and thrown out. Like, translations of the Bible are not haphazardly done. No. They're carefully done. They're Over done a decade. Yeah. It takes a long time. It's with people who have devoted their lives to studying these texts, to mm-hmm. studying these manuscripts, to delving into the minutia of do we translate this word as green or dappled yeah right and most right. normal people when you say oh what do you think about chloros hippos right they're not gonna have you know what are you talking about chloros hippos yeah revelation yeah. 6 8 man chloros hippos like what is it right <laughs> yeah. um, it, but it's that kind of love and reverence for the scriptures mm. of like man we we can't afford to get this wrong Right. Because this is God's word, right? Yes. This is. <laughs> yeah. And, and if we take it carelessly and we go, eh, I think it means that. Like that's something as a pastor that just frustrates the snot out of me is people, people always say, you know, pastor, what this text means to me. I'm like, okay, let's talk. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter what it means to you. Right. Or what it means to me. We need to figure out what it means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there's. I I hope that when people say something like that, mm-hmm. what they're what they mean is, I see it applying to my life in a certain way right, in this right, particular right, 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 instance. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, I hope that's what they mean, but maybe, maybe that is. Yeah. But I think it's often not. Um, I mean, I think it's yep. going back to your just idea of the magical talisman. Mm-hmm. Um, or I, I think in my book, I talk about the Bible as the magic eight ball. Right. You know, the same yep. the same thing um, of it just. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a shame. I think also a lot of our disagreements when it comes to scripture with, within the Christian community mm-hmm. um, comes from maybe a lack of understanding of the way translations work and how important they are. And especially, you know, going back to what you said about, I had no idea Jesus spoke Elizabethan English. (laughs) Obviously he didn't. (laughs) Um, And, but having new translations since the King James version or, you know, you know, even, even since we did the voice, Mm. um, having new translations are important, not because the Bible changes, not because scripture changes, we, we do as archaeologists um, and scholars, you know, we do discover new things, mm-hmm. which I think is important to put in there. But the, the biggest thing, the biggest reason that translation is important is because our language changes. Yes. Text yes. doesn't change. God right. doesn't change. Holy Spirit doesn't change. The message doesn't change. But our language does. Right. And, um, you know... I, yeah, I mean, there's so many examples. Yeah, you know, yeah. in Ecclesiastes, vanity, all is vanity. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you hear that today, and I think, well, you know, Instagram, vanity you know, or something. Vanity. That is not actually, you know, a better translation mm-hmm. in this day is, you know, everything is breath, everything is vapor, right. you know, something like that. Because that's what the word in Hebrew literally means, right? Vapor. Yes, that's the it word is. To translate it. Yep. It is. Well, yep. back in, as you say, you know, King, King James time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. vanity had that meaning. Vanity doesn't have that meaning to most of us right. today. Right, right, and right, right. Um, that that's why, you know, we need to, I think, I think God gifts people to, to keep working in these areas. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, the, the Bible is a living, breathing document in that it is always going to be applicable um, mm-hmm. because it is God's word, because God is a living God. Right. Yeah. You talked about archaeology. Yeah. When I think of archaeology, I think of Indiana Jones. Yeah, I know. I think of the, you know what I'm saying? Like, I do. I do. Like that oh, yeah. to me is what... I definitely had that ringtone at one point in my life. <laughs> I read that in your book. I, I got to check did that. Actually, did that yeah, make yeah, it in? Yeah, yeah, it did, actually. <laughs> so you've been on archaeological digs in Israel. I have, yeah. Wow. As recently as last year. That is super cool. Um, um, yeah. Tell me two questions. Sure. Why archaeology and what's the significance of it when it comes to the biblical text? So why are there still digs going on for that? Why is that important? 
And then what is that actually like to be a part of an archaeological dig? Is it like them in that last scene of Indiana Jones where they pull up the Ark of the Covenant and it melts the guy's face off and the Nazis are like, is that how that is? What's, what's Absolutely. It actually like? That's what I thought. Yeah, That's yeah, what I thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we wish. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip you around and do the second part first again. Okay. Um, archaeology is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is a lot of hard work. Even even some of the other archaeology movies, like um, let's say the Mummy, any of them, like yes. they show people, you know, standing there in their nice, crisp, clean white outfits with the hat and all that. Mm-hmm. And you know, our outfits might start off white because it reflects sun, mm-hmm. but after about thirty minutes, um, I mean, I'm a hot and sweaty, muddy mess. Because yeah. um, it's, it's it hot is, in Israel. It is hot. You have mm-hmm. to, it, well, let's say it's easiest to dig in Israel um, during the hottest part of the year because there is no rain and mm-hmm. um, rain really messes with the strata and mm-hmm. the um, the way you would date things that are coming out. So mm-hmm. it's important to, to, to you, you're, you're digging in the hottest part of the year. Um, mm-hmm. When, when you're digging, uh, it, it is physically demanding. Um, mm-hmm. Everything from, you know, pickaxes, you, know, you, you have heavy stuff. Um, you have to, you know, scoop up um, these, like, baskets full of dirt. And when these baskets are full of dirt, they weigh about 50 pounds each. You wow. know, dumping those into wheelbarrows, filling the wheelbarrow, running the wheelbarrow up the hill, dumping it. I mean, there's there's a physical, it, it so is uncomfortable. So you can't just, like, bring the backhoe in and be like, all right. Come on, Bubba, bring it down. <laughs> just pull it out. Some excavations will begin that way right, 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 <laughs> with the backhoe. Oh, um, be, well, they'll take like so. Archaeology is done on what are called tells. <laughs> they're, um, they're just these artificial hills, these artificial mounds that were created by you know many many civilizations building on top of each other. Um, so sometimes when um, when archaeologists are going up to a tell, they will take a backhoe and take a chunk out of the side of it. Um, and because it will kind of give you a glimpse of what all the layers are that are oh, inside the tell that? so that you, you almost have like an idea. Almost. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, it is. I mean, it, wow. it, it, yeah, it really, really is. Um, different, different things look, you know, differently. Archaeologists rejoice um, when there is a destruction layer because mm. you'll have like a layer of ash that will go all the way across. And if you can figure out, you know, this is when Sennacherib came and destroyed the city, let's say. Um, well, then wow. you can, you know, go off of that and figure out who was before it and who was after it. Um, wow. So, so, so sometimes backhoes are used yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, for your average digger though. Uh, the biggest thing you're going to use is, is a pickaxe. Um, so, I mean, that's hard, heavy work, but then on the other end, um, you know, when you're working with the smaller tools, you, you can't sit on your bottom, you can't lean on your knees or anything like that. You have to be basically squatting the entire time that you're working. Um, so yeah. archeology, span you, you have to love it. You either right, love right, it right, or right, you right. hate it. And mm-hmm. I'm one of those weirdos who absolutely loves it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is such a painstaking experience. Mm. Um, why do we still do it? Why is it important? Yeah. Um, because th- there's so much, I mean, the Bible aside, there's so much of our human history that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And um, you, know, you learn from the past, you, you learn from history. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's, we want to know as much as we possibly can about the people who came before us in a biblical context. There are still things in the Bible that, you know, we don't understand no matter the translation, there are words, especially in the Hebrew that, you know, they're only used one time and we don't actually know what it means. And we make guesses, but occasionally you get that archeological find that illuminates something. Um, And a great example. Yeah. Well, I just interrupted for just a second. So like, when you go doing an archaeological dig, do you go hunting for one thing or do you just go, there's a site, let's just dig it up and see what we find? Good archaeology um, sees a tell on the horizon and says, mm-hmm. let's go find out what's there. And mm. if it happens to match up with the Bible and the historical record and all of that, yay, great, that's wonderful, that's what we want. Right. If it doesn't, mm-hmm. then you know we know we're going to need to go to other places and explore things more. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go looking for a specific object, like say the Ark of the Covenant, that's not archaeology. Which is in the CIA warehouse. I mean, come on, that's what it says in Indiana Jones. Exactly. Yeah. 
have you seen that thing on Big Bang Theory where they make the point that if Indiana Jones had not existed, that story would not have been any different? <laughs> No, I haven't seen this that. rocked my world yeah. and it's absolutely correct that entire movie could have happened without indiana jones in it anyway that was a side note interesting wow yeah we'll do a yeah. whole podcast episode indiana jones. Know, it's yeah. heartbreaking yeah. <laughs> but when people go looking for a specific thing um that is what we call treasure hunting or mm. grave robbing in some in some cases right. first off it's illegal um in israel to do that um yeah. but but more important i mean that's yeah that's all it is it's treasure hunting it's right. it's 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 bad practices right. honestly it's it's like opening up your bible and saying you know i want to find out this thing from the bible and looking mm -hmm. and the thing is if you go looking for something odds are you're gonna find it mm -hmm. whether mm -hmm. or not it's actually there and oh, yeah. um yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's well, that's not, what, that's, not, that's not what you want. That's not truth. Right. It's the difference between the process called exegesis, mm -hmm. where you go to the scripture and you read it and you mine out what it says. And that's right. you say, well, if the Bible says this, then therefore I believe this. Or eisegesis, which is saying, I believe this, so let me go to the Bible and see where yes. it supports what I believe. And so I yeah. guess you can do that with history or archaeology, right? To a degree, yeah. Um, when it comes to, I mean, if you, if you find the Ark of the Covenant, you find the Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. But um, when you when you go to archaeology and say you have a theory that you're trying to prove, like mm -hmm. um, there's, this, there's this branch of biblical archaeology that um, they have just decided that kings, David, and Solomon didn't exist. Yep. And so when they go to particular sites, they will date things to prove their theory. Um mm. Thankfully, you know, there are people who, who have written against this and I, I am I'm not in their camp at all. Um, well, a, but you can you can go to archaeology, yeah. maybe even in places where it's been done well. Mm -hmm. But if you want it to say something, you can sometimes make it say something. Right, right, right. Well, isn't there a archaeological artifact that was found that proves the House of David exists? Isn't that the it's called the. But you, the you Teldan Stele? Yes, that's what that's what yeah. I have to say. Yeah. So um, the Teldan Stele uh, was one of those early things. It basically um, uh, a guy at some point, you know, wrote on a, on a, a piece of stone um, the words "the house of the house of David." Mm. Um, that was at some point the, the city that he wrote it in um, was destroyed, and then the Assyrians came in when they conquered Dan. They you know found that stone and used it to build a wall later. Um, so in the city of Dan, um, which is it's right on the Lebanese border um, mm -hmm. with Israel, it's actually incredibly beautiful. It's an oasis. Um, I got to visit it last year, and it's it's gorgeous. Uh, mm -hmm. But anyway, um, they. Uh, they, they found this and this yeah. is the first time that um, house of David had ever been discovered sure. um, out in the archeological field. And so that had a, a lot of archeologists going, yes, this is proof. This right, is proof right, that right. King David existed because until that point, his name had not been found anywhere outside of the Bible. Um, the problem with it is the inscription is not completely clear. It was not mm. found in situ. Like it would have been better if, you know, we knew who wrote it and we found it, you know, in the layer where he wrote it instead, it had been reused in a layer wall. Um, mm. so, so there are problems with it. Well, the people who want to say David doesn't exist and they want to discount it, they, they will take those problems and advertise all of those right. and use that as, well, basically just discount it. Right, 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 um, right, right, and, right. and I will say when I was an undergrad, I was actually taught that I was taught until the NCLA didn't matter that, um, David and Solomon didn't exist, or if they did, they were just minor tribal leaders, you know, something like mm. that. Um, but actually, when I got to Harvard, um, that bastion of liberalism, as we all know, mm -hmm. I, I was taught the opposite. Um, wow. And the the um, academia is starting to swing back the other way. Yeah. People are you know, believing that David and Solomon did exist, but, yeah. you know, there are still these factions. Um, there are people who are in archaeology to prove the Bible, and there are people in the archaeology to prove that god doesn't yeah. exist and well, it, it just both comes, are bad yeah i mean it just comes full circle to how we started yeah. off like we we come to the text sometimes with these presuppositions we come to yeah. these texts holding on to what we want them to say be it yeah. from tradition or be it from our own bias whether it's we want it to disprove something or not and i yeah. think you know responsibly reading this text 
and responsibly opening up our hearts to receive it as God's word starts with humility. Absolutely, yes. Starts with us saying, I'm going to, I'm going to bow my knee before God Mm -hmm. and receive this word as his revelation for me. And whatever it says, whatever it says, I'm I'm going to receive it. That's right. I'm not going to try to twist it and try to, you know, shove it into a box that makes it fit with what I want to think or my denominational leanings or whatever. I'm just going to read it for what it says. And where I've got questions, I'm going to wrestle, grapple, study, all that stuff. And I think sometimes we're unwilling to do that. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a pride issue there, too. Pride, fear, both together. We're afraid to say, I don't know. Especially mm-hmm. when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to yep. to God, we're we're not comfortable with that. And mm-hmm. um, God doesn't attempt for us to know everything when That's it comes right. to the Bible. When it comes to, I mean, he he is intentionally, I think, mysterious. Yeah. So there's and, the main and plain things that are main and plain, but yeah. then there's other parts of it that, hey, like there is a mystery of God. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that's okay on this side of eternity if we Absolutely. don't get it. Absolutely. He designed right. it that way. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah, say I don't know, but don't. But we shouldn't be comfortable with I don't know. We shouldn't just let it sit there. I think that's, right, that's right, God's right. invitation to us to, to dig to in and study more. more. Absolutely. Well, Amanda, this has been absolutely awesome. Great, great so conversation. Fun. Yeah. Tell Thank us a little you. bit about where we can find your book and where we can tune into oh. your podcast. So um, you can find my book pretty much anywhere right now. I know our okay. local Barnes & Noble has it, um, but, you know, wherever you order books, it's okay. out there. Um, and the my book pod- title is Mary Magdalene Never Wore Blue Eyeshadow. Yes. How All to right. Trust the Bible When Truth and Tradition Collide. Um, awesome. I, my, my podcast is The Red-Haired Archaeologist, also available wherever podcasts are. And okay. it is... So season one is out there. It's only like 12 episodes. Um, I am working on season two right now. Awesome. And it is going to um, it's going to work along with my next book. So my next book is Thread-Haired Archaeologist Digs Israel. It comes Very out in cool. February. Um, so, yeah, lots more archaeology stuff to come. Awesome, um, awesome, yeah. awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, sitting in for Gabe. You don't have a beard Happy like Gabe. It. I but, don't. Yeah. But maybe. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I got lots of red curly hair. There you go. Yeah. That, that People can't see substitute. me playing with my hair. But yeah, it's like when you stroke your beard, no one can see that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> People just have faith to know that we have beards right. on this episode. So anyway. That's right. <laughs> Amanda, thank you so much. And uh, thanks, everybody, thanks for, for tuning me. in. Thanks for listening. And uh, we will see everybody next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.